Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more. More meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. Hey, hey, how's it going? You are listening to episode 89, and I'm Danielle Delamar, and I am still taking a break. (laughs) I um, am re-releasing Dr. Laura Froyan's interview, which I did about a year ago, and I got to tell you, This is such a good interview, especially if you struggle with self-compassion, especially if you struggle with work-life balance, if you struggle with figuring out how to fit everything in, including your parenting. This interview makes me glad I'm choosing to take a break. This interview makes me glad that right now I am choosing my family and my own sort of wellness and feeling really validated in the fact that I'm re-releasing another episode because I need time and space and it's a way for me to, as Laura talks about in this episode, it's a way for me to draw a boundary and say, look, my job has been sort of encroaching too much on my life recently, and it's time to rebalance. So what about you? I know I asked last week when I re-released Rebecca Schisler Marshall's interview, have you taken a break? This is a tough time of year. This is a tough time of year, especially if you're an academic. Just give yourself what you need. Um, Yeah, that's what I've been doing for the last couple of weeks, and I'm feeling better. I'm definitely feeling more connected to myself and more connected to my family, right? Martha Beck talks about rest as a power position because it's in that rest that you re gain your strength. And um, yeah, I like to remind myself of that every time I make a commitment to rest because I'm actually giving myself a chance to regain my strength as opposed to just going and going and going and going and going and feeling fragile and sick and unable to connect to myself and my family right, and anybody else around me really. Anyway, I'm wishing you so much balance and rest and the courage to rest. And you're going to love this interview. All right, here's Dr. Laura Froyan now. Hello, today I'm talking to Dr. Laura Froyan, who is a parenting consultant and the creator of the Balanced Parent Podcast. Uh, She is also the admin of a free parenting Facebook group called Balance Parenting. Laura, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Danielle. I'm so happy to be here with you. 
Oh my gosh, I am too. And I got to tell you, I love that you do a lot of self-compassion stuff with your clients um, because it sounds like self-compassion was a pretty important uh, life-changing moment for you like it was for me. Yes? Yeah. You know, I... Um there were certain points in my journey as a parent and as an academic where I have been very hard on myself and self-compassion based mindfulness has been incredibly transformative um, in helping me just be more kind to myself and as a result, be more open to becoming my true self both as a parent and in my professional life. Mm-hmm. When did you learn the self-compassion stuff? Mine was when I was a professor and I was feeling awful. Um, but when when did it come up for you? Yeah, so I was a new professor and also newly pregnant with my second child. And I had had some pretty significant birth trauma with my first child. And as a result, I sought out mindfulness-based birth training. And um, there was a lot of self-compassion work in that training. Um, and I just, I fell in love with loving kindness meditations. It, mm. it, it became something that was so easy for me to access. There wasn't a lot of pressure to it. You know, I feel like sometimes when you think about sitting down and meditating, it's like this big thing. And, uh, you know, it like loving kindness was so accessible to me, so much more accessible than any other form of meditation uh, I had tried. And it was also intensely painful to offer myself love and kindness. Mm. Um, at first, you know, it takes practice, um, especially like if we have been in a place where we learned maybe growing up that we were only worthy of love under certain conditions, um, that our worthiness was tied to our behavior or our success. Um, and as a high performing individual, uh, like many academics are, that was very much my story. Um, it was very difficult to be kind to myself. And I know now that I get to teach self-compassion work to parents that it often can be very painful and very difficult to turn the same love and compassion that we offer to our children inward towards ourself. And when you started doing that, what are some of the benefits you noticed? Um, Well, loving kindness meditations cured my road rage. Um, Mm. Anytime somebody cut me off or I missed, uh, you know, a a green light just by a breath, you know, a hair, um, I intentionally focused on sending whoever the offender was loving kindness prayers that they would make it where they were going safe and um, compassion for myself, you know, that if I was a few minutes late, it would be okay. Um, Everybody... Mm who was around me would understand and forgive me. Um, And then even if they didn't, that was their problem, you know, just being super kind to myself. And in doing that, it let me start listening to what I actually wanted and not just what I thought other people expected me to do or thought I should be doing, um, but really what was right and best for me. I guess a couple things. One is I can feel the compassion 
in you. I we had a conversation for the first time a few weeks ago, and I remember just feeling very um, supported by you. And it, it was this sort of, you know, we're both sort of entrepreneurs and you had said, you know, what can I do to help you? And you were very willing to do whatever you needed to do um, to to be as supportive as as possible. And I felt that. And I know people always say, you know, you don't remember the conversations with people. You don't remember what they say, but you remember how you feel when you're with them. And I felt that with you. And so one, I want to say thank you. How amazing when you become more self-compassionate, you then are able to become more compassionate to others. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so much. I, I, that's something that I think is, I, you know, it is, sorry, let me gather my thoughts because you just said something that I think is so important for parents to understand too. And I know you're not all parents, but this is what I, like everything that I do is through, you know, the parenting lens. And if we want to be generous with compassion, um, without it draining us, it has to flow freely from within us. And it can only do that if there is this never ending well of it coming up. And the only way for that to happen is if it starts with us, you know, that we are fully filled in terms of compassion so that it can then overflow into those around us. I love that. That is so beautiful. Um, and a little startling if you start to think, oh, there's no other way I can be compassionate. <laughs> Wait, I can't find a way to be fully compassionate and fully present and fully loving if I'm not self-compassionate. Um, I think, I think very, that, that can be startling and scary. Yeah, I think I think you can be, but it's draining and exhausting. I think that that's more what I meant. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it, yeah, yeah. It like, that's when we are giving so much of ourselves that it, and it drains us and exhausts us um, because there isn't that kind of internal, eternal well coming from within us, you know? And when you say, well, I just got this image of just like you said, the flow and the the love and the the supportedness and being taken care of, um, and so, yeah, filling your own well is really important. And, and how do you teach parents to do that? And how do you do it for yourself? Um, it's a practice. So um, it's it's a muscle that you exercise. So it's daily moments of dropping into intentional kindness directed towards yourself. Um, taking moments of time out of your day uh, to engage in the intentional practice of being kind and warm and loving towards yourself. So uh, for example, I give my clients a background that they can put on their phone that has a very simple loving kindness meditation on it. And instead of scrolling Facebook, or Instagram when they are like waiting in line um, to get a coffee or to at the grocery store, they do self-compassion meditations instead, a loving kindness meditation. Mm. Um, like I do them whenever I'm stopped at a red light. It's one minute, you know, it's just it, like, and it, it just infuses the day with 
the awareness that we are all imperfect human beings and we are all worthy of kind and gentle treatment. And to know that you can give it to yourself, I think, is really life-changing. It was for me. Oh, yeah. You don't have to get it from your right. accomplishments. You don't have to get it from your advisor or from your partner mm-hmm. or from your boss or from how many citations you got on Google Scholar today. <laughs> you know, like all of those things. None of those. You don't, you don't have to get your worth and your worthiness from those things. Those are your basic, like those are the gifts of your humanity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I want to dive into your story, your acad- your story in academia, but I also, um, I, I guess I want to know um, if it was, how difficult it was. And I'm stumbling through this question because I'm not totally sure what I'm wanting to ask, but I I guess I want a little bit of a timeline. Um, So you said you were a new professor when you first found self-compassion. You were pregnant again and you had had birth trauma previously. And so there was a lot going on. And um, I guess my question is, how long did it take to get to a point where you were able to feel the free flow of the self-compassion? Because it's, it's kind of a journey. It is very much a journey. (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, it, I, I don't know. Parts of it Mm -hmm. were so easy and some of it was very hard, you know, so a little bit about my kind of academic journey. So when I graduated from undergrad with a degree in psychology, all I really knew was that I wanted to help families feel better and not damage each other. That's really what I wanted to do. And so I started off doing um, running a research project that looked at how family and marital conflict influenced child development. And then from there, after two years of that, I moved into grad school and I got my master's degree in marriage and family therapy and then a PhD in human development and family studies. And through that whole time, I saw clients and I continued researching how different family processes influence child development. This was my big area of interest, but it was all in service of wanting to help families and wanting to help really help kids grow up in contexts that didn't damage them um, so that we could kind of raise this generation of children that doesn't need to recover from their childhood. And when I was a new mom of two, so I got you know, my husband and I were both academics and we were both very lucky and got jobs straight out of grad school uh, at tenure track, um, in tenure track positions. And so I was in my first year as a professor and I got pregnant right away with my second one. And when I was eight weeks um, pregnant, I also got into a car accident. Um, and that put me on this path that kind of bumped me off of the plan, the things that were supposed to happen. Mm. Um, And as a, you know, so at that time is when I was discovering loving kindness meditations and um, self-compassion based mindfulness. 
Um, and so that was all kind of happening at the same time. And then after my daughter was born, I was, um, my recovery was very difficult, um, in large part due to the accident I was in. I was on bed rest for two months after the baby was born. Um, I couldn't carry her. We had to hire a nanny um, to come in and get her and put her to bed after I finished nursing. Um, it was a very hard time. My husband was, you know, a, a, in his now second year as a professor, it, and he was doing everything. And then when I went back to work, I would teach and research and then come home and have nothing left to give to my kids. And my research was moving further and further away from actionable, like helping families. And I just, you know, I, I just started feeling really disconnected from my purpose. And I had this moment where I was laying in bed in pain, unable to walk, and the nanny had just gotten um, my youngest daughter. And like, I just had this intense moment of like, almost like out of body compassion for, sorry, for this new mom whose body was hurting and who didn't know how to do it all, how to be a researcher at an R1 institution, how to be a good professor, a good teacher, a good mentor to graduate students, um, how to be a mom who is open and available to her kids, um, whose body could handle the rigors of motherhood, um, how to be a good partner. I, I didn't know how to do it all. And... I had this, just this moment of clarity of you can't, like you can't do it all. And it wasn't like a painful moment. It wasn't a, like a harsh on myself moment, you know, like a, you're not measuring up, you're, you are incapable. It wasn't that piece of it. It was a completely compassion filled moment of it's unreasonable to expect you to do all of this and you can't and it's okay. And that doesn't make you a bad mom or a bad professor, like to acknowledge it's that it's hard right now, that it feels impossible right now. Um, and in that moment I decided to quit and walk away. And I was, yeah. So. Wow. So it was the first time you'd really fully given yourself compassion and that's the decision you came to. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, I was, there were, you know, there's always fears and worries that come up, you know, with being a high achieving person and being a perfectionist, you know? Um, And I was lucky that I had had a grad advisor who in a moment of fear, as I was working on, like thinking about accepting this job. I, you know, I was worried if, you know, what if I don't like it? What if I don't want to do this? And she, she told me, she like, well, then you'll quit and you'll do something else and you'll be fine. And so I was really lucky, you know, that I had someone, you know, that I respected who told me that. Um, But yeah, ultimately it was me seeing my own, worth in that this was my life and that I got to choose 
I could choose a path that was a little easier and that wouldn't make me bad or a failure or anything. It would just mean that I followed the path that life presented to me. Okay, so you have this really intense, life-changing moment and you make this huge decision. How scared were you to talk to your husband about it and and you know and 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 just make the you know move into doing it right talking to your mentors talking to your chair to doing the things you needed to do to to make to bring that to fruition yeah you know so so for me like I I'm the kind of person who thinks a lot on something. And then when I decide, I decide and I don't look back and I don't have regrets on it. So I I had let my husband in on some of these thoughts, um, but he was 100% supportive of whatever I wanted. And I had always had in the back of my mind that I, I had a flexible degree either. Like I got the degree I got because I wanted to be able to move and shift, you know? And so we always knew that if academia wasn't a good fit for me, I had these practical skills that I could fall back on and move in a different direction if I wanted to. And so like there was, there was an, another, like an alternative for me that felt really good and felt really safe to move into. And then when it came to talking about it with my Oh, my advisors and the people who I was, um, you know, had partnered on on papers at other universities and stuff. I just, um, I was just honest about where I was and there, there was disappointment. There was pushback. Um, there was, you know, my department was wonderful and they were very open to me taking a year leave of absence and coming back. They had invested in me. And so there was, there were worries and fears about like, who am I disappointing? What am I letting down? People had invested in me. Um, And, you know, I, I think that at the end of the day, I just had to choose my life over and my mental health over some of those other things that that seem big and important but at the end of the day at the end of our lives when we look back they they won't be oh my gosh this is so good and so bold and um i don't know enough people who are willing to do this um so many of us just keep ourselves going so that we don't disappoint other people Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Have you always had that kind of courage or is this something that just came on because the, the moment was just too intense? Yeah. You know, um, I, I grew up with wonderful parents whose primary tool for keeping me doing what they wanted me to do was disappointment. Um, so, Mm. you know, feeling my parents' disappointment was a pretty good deterrent for me, but I did start practicing like with, with, you know, kind of withstanding their disappointment in order to follow what was right for me as I moved into, um, you know, moved into graduate school. So my dad wanted me to go to a different school and to a different program than I chose. Um, 
and he was very adamant about it, um, that he thought I was making a mistake. Um, we didn't talk for, I think, two months um, between like when I made my decision and when I started uh, my grad program. And um, at that like time when we started talking again, he sent me a letter that apologized. And it was the first time he'd ever acknowledged how much pressure he put on me. And um, he, he acknowledged that I had been right to trust myself um, wow. and to follow what was right for me. And I think that that was an incredibly healing thing. Yeah, that like gave me the confidence, you know, later on at this other kind of inflection point in my life where my path changed to to trust that and to trust myself. But it's it's not easy. It's hard. That's amazing. That's amazing that uh, that your your dad did that. Um, and what a what a beautiful story. And it makes me think about what you had said earlier about um, your purpose being sort of to help raise a generation of children that don't have to recover from their childhood. Um, mm, will you, will you talk about that purpose and how, just say more about that purpose and how it connects to your own life if, if you can. Yeah, I think that um, there's lots of conversations right now in the world about oppression and power and control. And parenting is one of the systems where oppression is deeply embedded in it. And um, I think that one of the greatest ways we as people who choose to have children can impact society moving forward is by changing our parenting and moving away from using control as our primary source of power and influence in our children's lives and moving more towards respect and connection as the primary means through which we influence our kids as they grow. Um, and in doing so, we won't inflict the wounds that cause distress and dysfunction as kids age and become adults. Um, they won't have the wounds that most of us parents need to spend time working on healing in order to be the parents we want to be. And, um, if we raise a generation of children who know what a respectful, loving, mutual, and authentic relationship feels like, um, they won't accept anything else. They won't accept it from their future partners, uh, from their bosses, uh, from other systems that they're engaging in. Um, and I just, I think that if we want that for our, our future kind of society, then it, it starts with us as parents. I have never heard that talked about in that way. Um, parenting is a system of oppression and um, just this 
this the importance of connecting and how that then affects every other part of their life and and their ability to draw boundaries and i i've never heard it articulated like that and in fact what i hear is people say things like eh, that's how it is if you're mm-hmm. you know if you're a parent you're gonna mess up your kids somehow some way that's just how it is and i don't know there's just sort of uh throw up your hands is how it's going to be um, mm. kind of mentality that I, that I think I've only heard. This is the, this is the only mindset I've heard toward this, um, this particular thing around parenting. Um, so how does that feel to you in terms of this is my purpose. I'm going to do my part to make sure we raise a generation that is healthy. Do you find yourself feeling pressure? Um, Do you find yourself feeling a a push to do more than, than one person can do? Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, I have a beautiful community of parents who um, ask me for so much and want me to put so much out there. Um, but when I start feeling overwhelmed and like, there's so much to do, I connect to my fellow colleagues who are doing this important work to who share a similar value and a similar mission. Um, I am not in this mission alone. There's lots of us out there who want to support parents in parenting their children respectfully and reparenting themselves with respect and compassion. Um, Those two things go hand in hand. You can't be a respectful, conscious, and intentional parent without doing a lot of internal work on yourself. And there's lots of us who are helping parents do that work. And I, I really could care less if you work with me or if you work with any of my colleagues. Um, all I really want is for parents to find the person who speaks to them, who speaks to their heart, who they feel safe learning with, um, and then to go on that journey with them. Um, if it's me, great. If it's someone else, great. Uh, just doing the work is all, you know, then that's all I care about. And what then um, does your day look like if you are trying to do the, the, the connected parenting, um, the self-compassionate and compassionate parenting while also running a business? How, how do you make that work? What are some of your sort of tricks? Yeah, that's such a good question. So um, it's very important to me that I practice what I preach. Um, And sometimes my business gets in the way of that. Sometimes I bite off more than I can chew. I haven't set healthy boundaries for myself. And it pulls me away from my family in a way that sets me up to not be the parent I want to be. And what's beautiful about the approach to parenting that I take and that I teach parents to do is that that's okay. It's okay for our kids to see us make those mistakes. It's okay for us to say like, 
whew, I took on too much. I should have said no to this. Next time I will say no to this. And to say that out loud to our kids and model what healthy boundary setting looks like. It's okay for us to say, whew, you know what? I'm grumpy today because I have too much on my plate and I snapped at you and it wasn't okay. No matter how busy I am, I should always have time to be kind and gentle with you and to be kind and gentle with myself. So I'm going to take a minute and a breath. I'm going to put my hand on my heart and send myself love. And now I'm going to send some to you. I'm sorry. I snapped at you. I mean that like the, the repair piece of respectful parenting is so important, but, and like awareness of yourself too. Like if you bite off more than you can chew, like noticing it, becoming aware, being kind to yourself and doing better next time. Um, but the day to day, I, you know, wake up, um, I usually do uh, like a mindfulness practice while I'm brushing my teeth. Um, And then by then the kids are rolling into the room and we spend some time snuggling in bed, having some connection time. Um, And now they are back to school this week was our first week back to school. So mornings can be a little bit hectic. Um, We always take time to stop and have little moments of connection. And then, um, I work during the day, like today I was recording um, some lectures for an online class that I'm teaching, um, managing my podcast, you know, and then it'll be school pickup time here in an hour or so, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't I, know if that's helpful. <laughs> I know it's super helpful. I, I love the repair component that you talked about and also building in the the connection first thing in the morning. Oh, it's um, so key. Oh, it's that's beautiful. Yeah, lots of parents um, don't realize that. Um, you know, they un- they understand when the kids go to school that that's a separation, and that kids need a connection ritual before and after to bridge the separation. Um, but sleep is also a separation, even though you're in the same room and sometimes even in the same bed, um, you're psychologically separated while you're sleeping. And so a connection ritual to bookend sleeping is also really important, just like it would be if you were dropping your kid at daycare. And right now what I'm thinking about is how busy I was and how busy so many of my colleagues Mm -hmm. were as tenured and tenured track faculty Mm. and how it's just like not possible in the world that they live in or in the world that I used to live in to build in the connection time. Um, And I realize that like technically it's possible, (laughs) right? Like, But I also read through some of the notes you wrote uh, for in preparing for the podcast. And you had said something about, um, you know, everybody does the best they can with what they've got. And if I haven't, which I hadn't back when I was, you know, a tenured professor, uh, I hadn't heard this perspective. Um, I hadn't heard some of the things that I needed to do to be a mindful parent. I was just getting through the day and Mm -hmm. I was feeling stressed that I had to pick up my kid and I was feeling stressed on the days that I had to be home with her. 
because mm-hmm. I had stuff to do and she was getting in my way. Oh. And of course I didn't want that, but that it kind of feels like that that's, that's a pretty typical story among academics. Yeah. And I know you work with academic parents. So will you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Well, first of all, Danielle, I hope that you've, if you haven't, I hope that you do take a moment to just call to mind that mom with a young kid in a tenure track position and who's feeling frantic and that feeling of my kid being in my way and not enough hours in the day and I'm failing at everything. I hope you can call to mind an image of that woman you were and just send her so much compassion and grace. Like right now, like if you haven't done that yet, you should totally do that. (laughs) And that's, I'm doing that as you speak actually. And I'm tearing up a little. Yeah. I mean, all of us have moments in time where we were not our best selves, where we were disconnected from our purpose when we were going through the motions or we were being driven by things that weren't authentically what we wanted for our lives. We all have those moments and it can be painful to look back on them, um, particularly when we're on the other side of them. And it can also be painful to be in them in the moment and realize like, oh, this isn't what I wanted from my life. This isn't the intentional life that I want to choose. And that like, I mean, that's where compassion comes in. That's why I love the concept of your business and your podcast because it's so necessary. But yes, I do get to work with a lot of academics. Um, I have some partnerships with universities where they um, provide, allow me to provide parenting consultations or there's an organization on campus that has funding. And so then I get to provide free consults for their employees and staff and um, grad students. It's a wonderful thing that I get to do. Um, I get to serve academic families in that way. Um, And there are unique constraints that graduate students and tenure track faculty face. And I think the thing that I help them the most with is firming up their boundaries around their time and energy. Academia is something that can suck all your time. There's always edits to make. There's always a paper to work on. There's always service to do. And if we have diffuse boundaries and um, are people pleasers and have a hard time saying no, um, it's very easy to be sucked into serving the academic world more than we serve our family um, or serve ourselves. And um, that's how things get out of balance. And so like having very firm boundaries around those things is really important. Um, my husband is um, is a tenured faculty member at the university where we first started at now. Um, and he is still, he every morning, He's home with us until the kids leave for school. He picks them up from school every afternoon. Sometimes that means he works more on weekends, but he has learned to work efficiently um, so that he can have the family life that he wants. Um, And sometimes it's easier, frankly, for men to do that too. 
Um, I have to constantly remind him to take on the ser- typical female service obligations in his department. Um, as a as a white man, he had like he has to be extra mindful to take on those things that normally are put off on other people, particularly on female faculty. Um, I hope he does a good job of that. But yeah. So when you talk about firming up boundaries that is intense like that like I think about if somebody had told me what you just said back then um when I was tenure track and you said look you know firming up your boundaries is the best way to do this um I think I would have just been flooded with um, more pressure, uh, more self-pressure, right? Not not pressure from you, but just feeling like, oh my God, this is the right way to do it and I'm doing it all wrong. Oh, yeah. And, right? Mm-hmm. And then the whole, and then the whole, um, what are some, uh, right? I, I often say to clients, write out a list of things that you absolutely have to do and then cross out everything that you actually don't have to do because we have in our minds that we have to do everything or the whole world will come crashing down. Yeah. (laughs) So how do you, how do you get people to understand that? Or I shouldn't say understand that they understand it conceptually, right? It's doing it. It's, it's making it a part of their experience in their lives. Yeah. So a lot of boundaries is thought work. Um, so like getting clear on the story and the narrative that you're telling yourself in the midst of kind of waffling on a boundary. And this is whether it's with boundaries with your kids when you're setting limits or boundaries with your mother-in-law as she's telling you that your kids need to have more cookies or, um, Mm -hmm. with your advisor or your um, chair, who's telling you, you need to take on more service. Um, you need to get clear on what your thoughts are that are happening kind of in the background. And we have habitual thought patterns, um, that are uploaded through our parenting when we were kids that like we learn how to think about things and what people are going to think about us and what our role is in the world. Um, And then we think those thoughts kind of in the background and they um, drive how we feel about a situation and how we act in the situation. So for example, if your chair is saying, you know, like in the moment, like you're in faculty meeting and your chair says, okay, there's a faculty Senate position open. Um, One of us needs to take it. And you're sitting there and it's silent. Nobody is volunteering. What are you thinking in your head? Oh, I really don't want to do this. I don't have time for this. No one's volunteering. I should be the one who does it. You know, I'm already doing so much service, but what if nobody says anything? What will they think of me if I don't volunteer? You know, I'm, you know, the junior person. I'm supposed to be, you know, doing more. Like, what is it that you're thinking through those times? And is any of it real? Like, can you know that people are going to think that you're selfish if you don't volunteer for this service at, you know, at that moment? No, of course not. You don't know what they're thinking. You can't know what they're thinking. And even if they were thinking that, that's their problem, not yours. It doesn't make it real. It doesn't make you selfish. It makes you smart in prioritizing your time 
and putting it towards something that is valuable and serves your career. You know, like those, that thought work is really important. Um, yeah. Amen. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I'm thinking about the, you know, just the whole model that you walk us through, right? The, the thinking, the thoughts yeah. that come to mind, the stories you're telling and then how they make you feel. And then the, how, those then drive your actions. Um, yeah. So, uh, so you are, tell me where I'm wrong, but you're telling me you can sort of intercept that because your thought is, oh my God, everybody's going to think I'm lazy. And so I've got to do this. And so you feel, so, so you tell yourself you're lazy, then you kind of freak out um, and you have like the, the, the freak out sensations in your body and you feel like, oh my God, I got to do this because then everybody will hate me. And then suddenly you're, you see yourself saying, oh, I'll go ahead and do that. And then you're like, shit, why did I do that? Um, so how do you intercept the thought um, so that that whole thing doesn't play out? Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing with, okay. So when you're this takes practice. Thought work takes practice. It's called also called self-coaching. Um, and it takes practice and work to be able to do it like in the moment. So when you're faced with something like this, where you might need to hold a boundary or you might feel compelled to not hold your boundary, there's always time. None of this is an emergency. You can always say like, I need a moment to think on this, or I need a day to think on this. I'll get back to you. Like, it's okay to ask for that time and not commit like right in that moment um, so that you can have the time to get your thoughts clear. And then once you start evaluating your thoughts, like, is that real? Like, are people thinking I'm lazy? Like, will people think I'm lazy? Does it, does saying no to service equal being lazy? Like, is that actually true? No. Okay. So that's not a helpful thought. So in that moment, I'm going to think this instead. And you come up with a replacement thought. This is cumbersome at first, but our train or our brains love efficiency. They don't like things to be cumbersome. They get really annoyed if we are clunking around with our thoughts. And so in circumstances like that, if we have a replacement thought ready to go and we think the old thought and then we think the new thought um, and we tell our brain like, no, we're not thinking that we're thinking this now, our brain will be like, fine, okay, fine. We're going to think this new thing now because we have other things to do. And then the new thought becomes automatic instead of the old thought. Um, it just takes time and practice and it is clunky at first, but luckily our, we have these really powerful brains that want to be efficient and we can use that to our benefit. Um, but if people are interested in this type of thought work, um, there's some really great YouTube videos that teach this model. Um, it's called um, CTFAR. Um, so C stands for the circumstances, T stands for thought, um, F stands for the feeling, A stands for action, and R stands for results. And if you just search that, CTFAR, um, in Google or in YouTube, you'll come up with lots of videos. The ones from the Life Coach School are the best ones. I feel like they teach it the most clearly. But I agree completely. Yeah, yeah. I love I love that model. I think it's so helpful. I used to do a, diff a similar um, model, and it's all cognitive behavioral 
therapy based. So all of this mm-hmm. is coming from the world of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I used to do a model when I worked with trauma survivors um, that was very similar. Um, it was the ABCs. So the activating event, the belief that it triggers and the consequences. Um, and so there's lots of different ways to do thought work. Um, there's no one right way. Um, there's only the only right way is the one that you will actually do. Well, and you kind of know if it's the right way, if your thought triggers, you know, a freak out or your thought triggers a sort of relaxation, you're going to, you want to choose the chill out one. The chill thought, the like, oh, I have time to make this choice. I can make a conscious choice, you know? Yeah. 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 Okay. (laughs) Awesome. I told you I teared up a little when you Mm -hmm. had asked me to go back and give myself compassion. Um. And I want you to know that that's not the only time I teared up during this. Like there is something that's really resonating with me in, in the things you're, you're saying. I think that um, career has always been the thing that I've been most obsessed with. And it is definitely my purpose. Um, I, I see it as, as a thing that I need to help the world with, Mm. at least in my small way. And I, I forget about the purpose that is my own parenting often. I mean, I will tell myself when I'm, you know, in a good place, this is your purpose too, Danielle. Mm. You're also a mother to two amazing human beings. Um, But when I'm not in a good place, I am... (laughs) That is not where I'm going. I'm just I, I like I I will use my my obsession with issues of career mm. uh, to sort of sidestep my own parenting. Um, and I wonder how much does that come up for you in in the work you do with clients? And then I want to ask you a little bit more about your understandings of purpose because I think that's an interesting point. Yeah. I mean, so I think balance is something a lot of people are seeking and um, especially in academic communities where it is so easy to get out of balance. And I think the, the point I try to make with families that I work with is that balance is not a state of being. It's an action. It's something that you are doing not something that you're ever done with, you know, so there is no perfect balance between work and life and family and self. Um, these are things that are like on a, you know, if you, do you know, those toys that you have for kids where it's like a round ball with a, like, we used to have these when we were kids too, that like has a, a place where your feet can stand on and you can like bounce and balance on them. These little like balance plates. If you stand on one of those, you're never like, you're never perfectly centered. You're moving your feet, you're moving your body, you're keeping that like that balance going. Like even if everybody who's listening would just to stand up right now and try to stand on one foot, they would feel the muscles in their leg and body making these little micro corrections to keep them standing on this one foot. And that's what balance is. And so it's just non-judgmental awareness. It's noticing, huh, I've been being pulled in here. What's off 
in my other parts of my life that's making this part of my life seem so attractive right now? Do I feel really competent here? Do I feel like I'm really doing really good here? Of course, like then it makes sense that I'd put my effort and attention there. What is, what is not feeling right? What's not feeling aligned over there? What needs to shift in order to pull my focus back there? Um, What would feel better, you know, for me? How would I feel more balanced? Those are, I mean, these are the questions that we have to be asking ourselves. And I think that this is why mindfulness is so helpful is because you practice like, like, work out the non-judgmental awareness muscle in your brain, right? And I mean, that awareness is the first part to any change process. And if we want to get better at noticing, we have like we have to practice it. Just like I'm not going to go run a marathon tomorrow. If I want to run a marathon, I'm going to spend probably six months training for it, you know? Okay, that's really good. Yeah, yeah. And I'll like, I'll, like keep sort of hearing in this whole conversation is about having this sort of ongoing continuous dialogue with yourself. Where am I at? How am I feeling? What do I need to change? What thoughts am I having? How are those thoughts making me feel? Um, and I love this last question or the, the last thing that you had said about, you know, what, what needs to shift? Why am I feeling so imbalanced in this area? Um, and, and the, what, what was the other thing? The competence, like, why do I feel more competent and more willing to do this thing and not that thing? Yeah. What's going on? That is such a great question. Yeah. Yes. So for so many academics and high achieving individuals, competence is where our self-worth comes from. Um, we were And it it all comes from parenting. Like what? We're praised for the A's that we get. We're praised for how smart we are and how tenacious we are. You know, like, I mean, those are like competence is a big one. It's a big way that we get our self-worth. And if we are nailing it at work and we feel super good and confident and competent in that area, of course, we're going to give more attention to that. It feels good. You know, if our, if our worthiness is tied to those things, I mean, and so that's a big piece of self-compassion that is uncoupling our actions and behavior from our worthiness of unconditional love and acceptance. And, you know, and so like, if we are still coupled, like our competence is where we get our worthiness, then of course, we're going to seek out the areas of our life where we feel most competent, competent, and we are going to avoid the areas of our life where we feel like we're nailing it or not, or we're not, or we're not nailing it. You we're we're not so great. Of course we are. That's only natural. That's only human. Okay. I love this so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, Okay. Yes. Yes. It is only natural. Of course. Of course. Um, And then it feels kind of yucky to have to go back in and be like, okay, I have to turn into this thing that's not feeling so good. Mm -hmm. But the first part is always the sucky part, right? Um, It's going to get better and better the more you turn into it, the more you shine light on it. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I mean, I really do believe too. I think that this is why self-compassion is so key. I know we keep coming back to it because, but it, it is what needs to happen to like to uncouple your worthiness from 
all of the indicators of success that we were told are, you know, supposed to matter. You know, they, they don't. You are worthy of acceptance and love and respectful treatment and dignity just by virtue of your humanity. Like it's just a part of it that that we have are entitled to as imperfect human beings in this world. And so if we no longer feel like we have to get the next paper through R&R, if we have to, you know, we don't have to get the next, you know, position or piece of kind of external validation that our validation comes from within, then it is much easier to put focus where we're not doing so well because not doing well isn't tied to our worthiness, you know? Yes, it totally makes sense. 100%. Yes, I love it. I love it. I love it. I have a renewed sense of like, I'm going to go be a good parent now. I'm going to be more connected. Um, I have my moments, but it, uh, yeah, I I just really appreciate everything you've just said. I, I, I think, I mean, you're certainly fulfilling your purpose in this conversation um, with me oh. and um, I'm sure with listeners too, I'm sure. Um, so then that makes me want to ask this question about what you do in your business and sort of your overarching sense of purpose and how those two interact with one another. Um, yeah, yeah. So just one thing is I don't believe in perfect parenting. Um, the vast majority of research on parenting and child development tells us that good enough parenting is what kids need. Um, kids are resilient and adaptive and need um, the kind of easy, like the um, stress that they can handle. Um, and so nobody's like, nobody here is trying, like, I'm not trying to tell anybody that they need to be a perfect parent. Um, lots of parents come to me as recovering perfectionists who are um, trying to find the way that just tell me what to say and my kids will listen and I'll be okay. And I'll be a good mom or, mm. you know, what is the right thing? And they frantically search, they read book after book, they listen to podcast after podcast and, um, trying desperately to find the answer, the right way to do it um, that will guarantee healthy, successful kids. And I'm here to tell you that there is no right way to do it. There is only... Dang it! <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. There's only connection. There's only the relationship. That's all there is. And if we focus on that, then we're going to be Okay. And we can do that, right? We can build re like relationships. We can connect authentically with the little humans that we are so blessed to be with. And if we can't, oh yeah. you know, if there's barriers to that connection, then we figure what those barriers are out. Our kids are really good at showing us where we have growth and healing to do. Um, if there's things that get on your nerves that your kids do, if there's things that trigger you or that make you see red, like that's a little, our beautiful brain's way of saying like, hello, there's healing to do here. Um, your kids are doing fine. It's you who needs work and help. And I mean, so these are the, these are the things that I like to talk about. So I have a couple of online courses. Um, I have, um, a membership that people can join where we, they, 
I kind of, I hold, it's called balancing university <laughs> and I hold office hours every week. Um, and they come in like the professor is in and they come and ask me parenting and, um, relationship questions. Um, and I, I, we do kind of monthly deep dives on different topics that they request. Um, that's my favorite thing that I'm doing right now. Um, I, teaching classes is great, but I like that. I think that it's so important to understand that if this is not something that's like one and done, like you're not going to just read a book and then be a perfect parent. Like if you want to change your parenting, it takes work and it takes support and it takes a community, especially if you are parenting differently. So if it, I mean, if, like anything like that you're doing different, like if you're approaching academia differently, you need a community of pe- like-minded people who are doing it with you. You know, like anytime we go yes. against the grain, we need some people who are doing it too you know, to support us and guide us and walk alongside us. Okay. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was so amazing, but I have to say one thing because, um, there's something that has, um, stuck with me for a long time. And I would say it's been four years. Maybe I watched Dan Siegel's, uh, Mm. he, he has a talk. And he was in this talk, it was like a workshop series that I had videos to. And in this series, there was a part where he talked about some research that was done in like the early 80s. And he was talking about like attachment style and saying that in this research, they found that people who are most securely attached, um, their parents are, are people who can tell a coherent, an emotionally coherent story about their parenting decisions and why they do what they do. Mm. And I found that so fascinating. It has stuck with me forever because then I started going back to, could my mom tell an emotionally coherent story about her parenting and absolutely not. And when I think about like my in-laws, could they do that? Uh, No way. Absolutely not. Um, And then I start to really see how important this sort of self-reflexivity is, this sort of like inner dialogue. And so all, all the things you're saying to me are just building on that thing that uh, that resonated with me you know all those years ago yeah um you're talking yeah you're talking about intentional parenting and this is why like in my respectful parenting 101 course the very first thing you do is sit down and think about what are my goals for my kid what are my goals for my relationship with my kid what do I want out of our life together as a family and are my parenting practices supporting or undermining those goals and if they're, yeah, and if they're undermining, then like, we don't have to stay stuck in blame and shame. We just get to change it. We get to do something new moving forward. And that's it. Like, there's no rehashing of the past. There's no, like, it's just, and then we get to do something new and that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And we get to make mistakes exactly. and we get to repair and connect. You reconnect, you know, like it's, there's, you know, there's no absolutes. It's never done. The work is ongoing <laughs> and it's beautiful. Right. And we get a chance to do it every day. Right. Laura, thank you so much for joining me. This was such an 
awesome conversation. I feel like I was, you know, deeply coached and now I have a renewed sense of what I'm going to do. <laughs> oh, and it might start me. with like the goals for my kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You know, that's a really fun exercise too to do if you're parenting with a partner. Um, and if you are having differences or di- conflicts in your parenting styles and connecting over shared goals and values and priorities and understanding that you likely have very similar goals and priorities, um, that your approach to, you know, the path to meeting those goals and priorities may d- be different, but you are aligned in your goals. It's also helpful too, but sorry, I, but that's it. Okay. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I, can't, I, lo- I love talking I know, about this I stuff. I'm so sorry. Too. No, no. I, I, I just love talking about this. It's it, again, it's a passion and a purpose for me, but thank you for letting me share so much um, and being here with you. Thanks for listening to Self-Compassionate Professor. Find me on LinkedIn at Danielle Delamar, on Twitter and Instagram at Danielle SC Prof, or schedule a free coaching consult at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Be well. Be well.